Movies is going to be recorded and released twice a week, every week. Head on over to patreon.com slash so you don't miss a single episode. And you'll also be able to get exclusive access to series like After Dark, niche influential films of the 20th century, where each month I am going to be covering an underrated or overlooked film from the 20th century that had a lasting cultural impact that maybe isn't even noticed today. Go on over there again, patreon.com slash lowrest, $5 and up level. You're going to get a whole bunch of stuff, and I'm probably going to give you a little bit of insight on the making of our feature film that we've been working on for the past year, Mass State Lottery. Patreon.com slash lowrest. Enjoy the show. This is Movies, a podcast about the act of cinema. With me today is Hans, who's playing with his phone right now. He's getting text messages from a clandestine lover, I believe. No, I just... uh, Facebook keeps hiding my comments on our group. So I got two giant paragraphs of replying to something that I posted a week ago, and I can't see it because it's hidden. (laughs) So I'm trying to figure out what he was talking about. That's weird. You know what? I've noticed on the Facebook page that they've been hiding my replies to people, but seemingly only to me. So I will see a response, and I won't even remember what I wrote uh, to begin with to that person. So anyway, we got Jake back on the show. Jake, you're going to have to unmute yourself to say hello. Hello. I'm doing well tonight. And you picked the films that we're going to be discussing this evening, which are Toby Hooper's Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. very different films from one another maybe the most jarring uh sequel since exorcist to the heretic one could argue hmm maybe i don't know martin scorsese loved exorcist 2 isn't that the uh the yeah (laughs) yeah that's right that's uh my little bit of trivia i like to throw out every so often is scorsese does prefer exorcist to the heretic to the original exorcist oh what's his train of thought i don't think i've ever read that quote of why he loves it so much is it because james earl jones uh howls like a like a leopard at one scene or is it because italian people are retarded (laughs) (laughs) uh you know i'm not i'm not i don't have the quote off the top of my head but i think it had more to do with the actual filmmaking involved as opposed to the story or the acting, there's certainly uh, quite a lot more spectacle in a editing and uh, production theatrical kind of sense to Exorcist to the Heretic than there was to William Friedkin's original film, which is fairly straightforward as far as that goes. It, it leans more into the uh, practical effects of it. I think that's where they tend to show things off and also the uh, subliminal imagery. It's all a matter of makeup and and uh sfx really maybe that's the next one we can do i don't know maybe an an exorcist aren't they doing an an, an exorcist something a remake remake, i think yeah is it a remake of the original Uh, evidently what is uh what is david gordon green attached to is it that movie or is it what there's a remake of something I think it actually is The Exorcist. And uh, Dave Green, I've got a lot of respect for, but that's one of the ones that 
even yep. me i'm like I, i'm usually the guy that's like oh you, you you can't remake that no no that one you you physically literally cannot remake it yeah like you have william friedkin slapping ellen burston in between takes like firing <laughs> off uh, gu- like guns with blanks on set and then she gets injured and, and her back yeah. is fucked for the she, rest of the shoot she yeah. broke her coccyx on that on that shoot yeah uh, yeah which that's not couldn't, couldn't piss or poop comfortably for a couple of months <laughs> she has to sacrifice oh that sucks it's terrible yeah that poor woman she's still alive too he's still alive to remember the feeling of not being able to urinate peacefully the broken butt the last interview she gave too about it she was still griping about william william friedkin giving her a hard shove you know giving a little wink <laughs> to one of the crew members and then just giving her a push so uh, I well, don't know. I guess she's bitter I, to this day. I guess I can see where uh, Scorsese comes from. If you think of yeah, like more spectacle, like bigger, like uh, because The Exorcist is very self-contained, very small. Everything pretty much happens in in one. Well, at least the the memorable stuff happens in one single room. Uh, so it feels like a, a very small production. In the second one, because of all the Africa stuff and and. And uh, how much extra uh, B-roll, because that's what it looks like, uh, they add to it. It feels like a much bigger production, even though I'm not entirely sure if it was. Uh, so maybe for the... Spe- if you're thinking of more of like a Ben-Hur type of movie where it's just huge and I was maybe, about to say, but... I was going to say like Exorcist 2 is like if Cecil B. DeMille made it, but he was retarded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a lot of... Well, I, I would even argue that it's a bigger movie because... I mean, look, the budget, I believe, was bigger than the original film, but they shot in Iraq. And mm-hmm. I, a lot of the Exorcist <clears throat> to the Heretic Africa scenes are just Warner Brothers sound stages where they have rear projection going and maybe some cardboard rocks on the set and they get the, the shikis out. And that's really the gist of and it. And the POV of the, what is it? The, the locust. Yeah. Like no, they get a locust and they oh, just yeah. like locust. put it on okay. a string I'll... and put it in front of a blue screen or whatever. Really they did. According to the internet, the exorcist one had a budget of 12 and the second one of 14. So, okay. It wasn't so, that so not that bigger. Yeah. But that, that, it, in 1972 73 prices that's like a 50 million dollar movie or like a 55 million dollar movie which actually isn't that bad that's like um the budget for i think like the most recent conjuring movie was like 40 million so it's pretty much akin to that um but yeah it's it's like eh. also talking about talking about sound studios that that ooh, that third conjuring movie really bad it looked like it kind of looked like and i'm not saying this in an insulting way but when you watch justice zach snyder's justice like you can kind of obviously you know with our eyes we know when there's a green screen there or if they're actually on a location the conjuring three felt like they went and shot in the same spot that they shot zach snyder's justice like the same four green walls (laughs) but in in lesser hands and so you have like, what was it, Vera Farmiga falling down a cliff and Patrick Wilson rushes and tries to, and it looks so fake. It looks unbelievably unrealistic. It's just really rough uh, CG. Uh, yeah, you just don't need that. And I, I like the movies just on principle because they're like, I don't know. I, I think they're like the one kind of fun studio franchise with with really competent actors and mostly competent direction that when i watched it i was like this really isn't any good 
But just because I think the, they it, were, they were at a point. I think up to the Conjuring two, that was it. But then Annabelle, those three. I think there's three of those that. Yeah, the nun why, movie, and then you have La, La Girona one, which is just the that one, and the nun are just a just nothing good. Uh, so so. This one felt more like the second half of that universe, I guess, if you want to call it. Because even the Insidious and the, the first and second Conjuring, they feel fresh. They feel like, okay, so this is modern horror. This is cool. It might not be the greatest horror movie in the world, but it's watchable. And it doesn't feel out of place. Yeah. Anything after that, I feel like it's when, you know, when the, the greediness comes in. It's like, well, how, how can we stretch the smallest concept of the most basic tiny thing into three movies and then La Llorona, which was just what, what is even this? Like they didn't even go deep enough into the, the real story for it to even matter. Uh, same with the nun. Uh, they, they're completely forgettable, completely. Uh, what, what is the, the thing that we uh, say? Um, uh, factory line movie, you know, where mm -hmm. it's just like yeah. any of them could be the same movie. doesn't matter. And then this one, uh, just felt more like yeah, like that than than a part of the the trilogy that the country movies. Well, see, in the way they should go with that is like those were real people, like Ed and Lorraine Warren. I think Lorraine actually uh, just passed away fairly recently. Um, funny story, my my grandfather when he was a when he was a minister in Situate, Massachusetts, he was actually pretty friendly with Ed and Lorraine Warren. So, um, mm -hmm. yeah, so pretty, yeah, pretty, pretty cool connection to the movie on my report. Well, hey, what do you guys think right? about the fact that this, I mean, the last Conjuring movie is based on a real murder and they're like, no, it wasn't him. It, he was possessed at the time, but you're kind of making a movie. I mean, look, if somebody was murdered for real and they were, <laughs> And then you go and make a movie about how the killer didn't actually do it, that it was Satan or a demon possessing them. That seems a little morally dubious. No, did no, they, I, did... I think it's fine, but like... Now, don't, go, don't get me go. wrong. I think artistically, you can do whatever you want. I'm just saying it's a little strange that that didn't get a set of eyes on it when so many other lesser things maybe do. I, I just think it's they should have taken a different direction. It's it's um, you don't have to go full like exorcism of Emily Rose courtroom drama, but you you can go kind of in that direction. I, sure, like it was just all like too much boogly woogly, and I get that they're like oh, but that's what sells. And I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I thought a great parallel to go back to kind of square one of this conversation is if you made this movie more akin to Exorcist 3 with, um, with George C. Scott. Hmm. Uh, I think that I think that would have been a much better way to take the film where, yeah, there is kind of the big sequence at the end, but that's completely uh, fictitious. I don't even think the Warrens have that, like, cataloged as anywhere close to what happened. I, I think they just <laughs> came up with that whole <laughs> subplot and were like, oh, yeah, and this happens. But yeah. something I think more like uh, a lingering creepy terror with the suggestion of oh well what did come over this guy you know what did he just snap well, or you know did something actually happen and have the toe the line between those two dichotomies that probably didn't happen because the story was british right the murder happened in the uk i think uh isn't i think it's the same isn't it the same oh no it's not no they, that one was they, fake. they said uh, that um two other cases in the uk had claimed that defense but 
uh, that was a real case. Yeah, like um, their lawyer saying that he was possessed. And... Oh, okay, no, uh, because I'm. I always. I don't know why I always comp or remember both of them as if they were the same case. Uh, have you guys ever seen Ghostwatch? Ghostwatch. No, I haven't no. seen that one. No. Yeah. Unfamiliar. So Ghostwatch is a movie from I think it's '95. Uh, let me check. Ghostwatch. Uh, it's from '92. Uh, it's it's from the UK. It's a, a mockumentary, but they presented it as a as a real uh, show. So the movie starts with a presenter just talking to to the people about this family that's been going through uh, supernatural things in their house or whatever. Uh, and it's like a, an hour long. I think it's on, on Vimeo or somewhere. It's uploaded on, on the internet. Uh, but they show um, real footage of like a, a reporter from the show going into the house and and uh, supernatural things happened. Um, that, hold on. That sounds like an episode of uh, Tales from the Crypt that had Morton Downey Jr. in it. Have you guys ever seen that? No. Morton Downey Jr. Morton Downey Jr., the talk show host. He was like the original Jerry Springer. He's got uh, very strong Trump vibes to him, where he would just, but he would smoke a cigarette on set and call people freaks and weirdos if they believed in like liberal causes. And he died, uh, unfortunately, pretty young of lung cancer from all the cigarettes he was taking into his lungs from that TV show. So the 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 thing about this uh, movie is so that, no no um, Morton Downey Jr. Has you don't know no Morton I don't Downey know Jr. I'm not familiar with it no I'm not familiar with the episode I know who he is uh, but but. Uh, this movie, uh, the same thing happened as it uh, happened with War of the Worlds with a radio show where people thought that it was real and went nuts. But this was in 92 in, in the UK. Uh, according to this thing, the BBC uh, had about 30,000 phone calls from people that were scared, uh, thinking that it was actually real. <laughs> uh, at, at one point, like now with modern eyes, uh, because I, I watched it last week uh, again. Uh, just to see if it holds up, and it holds up if you suspend this belief of of you know all the technological advances in the last twenty years, but twenty thirty years. Uh, but uh, it's really funny because at the end, uh, the ghost like interacts with the studio and everything, and, and that's how the the the, the thing ends. Um, and uh, for whatever reason, what happens in that story is very similar to what happens in the story with this British family. Uh, and I just realized that they're not connected at all, but. That Ghostwatch movie is definitely one that I, I would recommend to anyone that's interested in that type of thing or that type of like fake uh, documentary or a fake uh, broadcast that really works. Even even now, like it still holds up pretty well. Great. So yep. you know this <laughs> this segue, but actually this this did come to mind for me. We're going to be talking about the Toby Hooper. You got to put that on silent. What is yeah, this? Yeah, a rookie podcast? What are we in the first <laughs> six episodes? No. Hans is a popular guy. He's in high uh, demand. Yeah, I just got a notification from the NBA telling me that. Yeah. <laughs> CRNBA. Like, you're our top draft pick, Mr. Six Foot Three Costa Rican man. You know what I watched recently, which is, feels extremely 90s now, talking about draft picks, is Jerry Maguire. Like everybody's, oh, yeah. that's, everybody's that's impression. That's like the '90s movie. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Everybody's impression of Tom Cruise came from that film, the sunglasses, like him being Jack Nicholson, basically. Mm. Yeah. And Renee Zellweger. Does he, does he hold up or is it face? Does he hold up or is it cringe? 
it's like neither. It's it, it, it. it's a little bit of both, maybe. It's still very like 1995, and like some of the character interactions feel not true. There are a lot reality. of ones being thrown. A lot of these. yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's not. It's it's like it's not great now, but uh, well, come I, on, guys. It has a cameo from the great Mad TV veteran Aries Spears. One of oh yeah, favorites. that's right. You know what? He actually made me laugh in that movie. He was pretty funny. For his he's actually a funny scene. guy. Very good comedian. Yeah. <laughs> what happened to him? He he just kind of disappeared. He flew off the radar he's, entirely. He's one of those guys. I'm afraid to look up what he looks like now. I guarantee I he's like kind fat. Of, I guarantee he's old. Yeah, he's kind I, of. I feel like he's I, just going to be completely he, bloated. He did a, I think a, a show with Bob Kelly recently that I just saw on my on my timeline, and he looks like Aries Spears, but with like twenty pounds or like oh, thirty pounds. No, heavier. which I mean makes sense. He's he's like fifty now, right? That's yeah, an excuse now. He, hold on, for morbid 40. obesity. Oh well, he turned fifty, yeah. so three hundred pounds. Yeah, so he should pounds. have heart disease. He's forty. He's forty six, and yeah. Wow, he's only forty six years old. So he would have been he would have been like twenty around the time of Mad TV because Mad TV started in what like ninety three to ninety five. I think ninety five. Okay. All right, he's he, he's not that fat. All right, never mind. I take it back. Really good for him. Older, he's just he's older. Martin Lawrence got kind of fat. Martin Lawrence, I mean, he's short, so it doesn't take much when you're under five nine, I think, to really plump up. To look like a big old. Do you guys, do you guys see that uh, Bad Boys movie? The new one. Yeah. No, no. I haven't seen it. Yeah. Well, I you did. Would, you did. You made that same, mistake. No. No. It was just the same. What are you interest embarrassed you... now that you watched it because you brought it up? You expected us to be able to initiate the conversation on how bad it is. No, I was hoping to get an, an opinion on it because I, ha- I, I every movie that comes out ten years, like the sequel that comes out at least ten years. Uh, after the the previous one, I'm never excited. Didn't about it. I think we talked to somebody who would watch it? Maybe it was like Oki when we had him on. Somebody when we because we got into the subject of like comedy from the '90s. I think Martin Lawrence came up, and uh, it was a similar issue to um, look at that. Uh, some of the more modern films where they just kind of Ugh. excuse a lot of the old humor. <laughs> they make excuses for it. They try to apologize for it. Uh, Jake just shared a photo of, I guess, what am I about? To... Oh, no. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Aerie Spears looks bad in another way, like in a drug way. Oh, well, no, he God. looks like he looks like he lost weight, but he's wearing this shirt from when he was fat. <laughs> That's like a 4X shirt. No, you can tell. He, That's a, a poor fella. Look at his eyes. His eyes have the darkest circles around them and his face is. Yeah. That's a man who loves substances. That's what I'll say. My question was that I wanted to pose to you guys is why do you think that the Texas Chainsaw Massacre films, you know, they've they've done how many has it been now? About eight? eight? Yeah, about seven or eight. Yeah. Right. At no point it seems like the idea of integrating some supernatural element into the series ever occurred to one of the filmmakers or the screenwriters. And they did that with Jason fairly quickly. Freddie had that to boot. Uh, Even I Know What You Did Last Summer wound up taking a supernatural turn by the third movie. Well, doesn't Michael Myers have a little bit of that? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Depending on the movie, I guess. The Thorn Cult. I mean, mean, 
if we're just saying it's included, yeah, he becomes kind of a zombie. Like he survives so yeah. many burnings and shootings and stabbings that it's kind of a Jason syndrome uh, situation with Michael Myers. He never learns to love. That's how you kill Michael Myers. You love him and you teach him how to love. No, he he, <laughs> he, shed, he sheds a single tear for Danielle Harris in the fifth movie. The funny thing is actually in the fifth movie, he's played by Don Shanks, who is, um, uh, he is a tribe. He, he's part of a tribe. And so when that single tear goes down his cheek, I always think of the joke of like when you litter and, 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 and a tribesman just wow. cries a single tear down his cheek. Let me tell you, you have to be at least 35 to get that reference. <laughs> because that commercial is older than me, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Anyway, I, I think, I don't know. I, it's almost a cool creative choice for that on the uh, the producers of all these Texas Chainsaw movies. I think people admire that neorealism that comes from the kind of aesthetic and the, the repertoire of the series thus far. But then when you see things like Texas Chainsaw 3D and maybe to a lesser extent uh, the Leatherface movie from 2017, which I actually kind of liked because of was it Stephen Dorff? Um, mm-hmm. They they yeah. all try to they all try to draw on that neorealism, but none I think have really gotten it since the one they did with Matthew McConaughey back in I think ninety five. But we we can get to that beginning. Maybe. Yeah, that's the beginning. No, right? the uh, the new next generation. Oh, next generation, right, right, right? Yeah, it's all it's all in that neorealism from that like documentary feel that came from the first movie that Hooper completely abandoned in in the second film, by the way, which makes it kind of funny how everybody tried to emulate that first movie feel even though by the second film even hooper himself was kind of just like oh no like we're gonna go full-on like kind of cult very theatrical style movie with dennis hopper saying he's the lord of the harvest with his big guns and his big 10 gallon hat do you think that it's because uh rednecks or woods people are still seen as like scary without the need of a cult or an alien or demon or anything like that because of the whole inbred thing right like that's the the stereotype of them being scary or like uneducated and overly uh strong because they work in the fields all day and shit like that so i guess maybe that's why that and something like the hills have eyes still don't need that uh, supernatural how about this how about how about a blumhouse texas chainsaw right uh, and it takes place on an old southern plantation and they make uh like black meat and black furniture and black lampshades mm-hmm. that's where it's going hell. next why, why did you throw out that idea? i want a paycheck when that happens that's why so i can uh, sue uh, ryan turk is going to snatch it up from you where's say, damon lindelof damon lindelof's texas chainsaw massacre Oh my God, Colin's favorite. You <laughs> know, it, it, it's a um, it, it's a good trope. It's just though, very, right? it's a drama. It's just very dramatic. <laughs> very pretty people uh, dressed like rednecks, uh, just looking at each other a lot. No, no. Well, hold on, fellas. We might not sound sympathetic to uh, very good subliminal messaging and social commentary films. We got scorned for that this week. Don't you forget? So. Oh yeah, for that fucking show that no one watched. Yeah, for for <laughs> oh oh together. Them. That's right. The yeah. YouTube yeah. comment we got from somebody who is subscribed to the uh, the YouTube channel, but also subscribed to like Chapo Trap House and Contra Points. And it's like they're trying to come at the whole argument with a 2016 uh, debate perspective. It's like 
it's really not that i mean look just read the crew members names go look up their photos on google image everything mm -hmm. is validated yeah yeah it's like let's get to token black people so that we can do this content without getting any backlash and we will put them as the face of the production and they are the names that everyone will mention but as soon as you go to the INTV it's like oh there's other six people in charge of this oh look they're all white that's weird how come no one, no one mentions them mm -hmm. and then it's like that's when you can tell that there's not that much thought put into all the racial shit they do it's just virtue no one really cares about that shit they, all they want to do is just make like Laura said liberal white women happy Mm -hmm. uh, with they can go to hell, though. Their... Hans, you brought up a great point yeah. I'd rather talk about than, the, than okay. these these smarmy producers. Uh, the the whole trope of like the redneck uh, rednecks in the woods and whatnot. It, there's probably an older basis for it, but I'd say it all goes back to deliverance, and it's a great trope. It, it's it's obviously I think with the redneck archetype, it's just kind of like, well, how many times do you want to do it exactly that way? But yeah, it all goes back to deliverance which is just a fantastic movie by the way and um i don't know if hooper when he was making texas chainsaw i might have to look into more behind the scenes content about it um if he was directly inspired by that but it came out within two years of uh deliverance itself so i think it's isolation and then just um this antiquated idea of who the other might have been back in those times. So, I mean, I wasn't alive in 1973, 74, but I, I suppose, and Hooper himself was a Texan, but I suppose may, there, there was maybe some kind of anxiety about this, um, this outlier working class that was being pushed out by advances in industry and, and, uh, and I think, uh, political connections that, that that kind of outsourced viable business and industry uh overseas and, and that, that's kind of the whole theme of texas chainsaw but i i think it, it has to at least in some way come from deliverance because that was so shocking to so many people you get was it uh ned Beatty? you have him squealing like a pig and getting his pants pulled down just <laughs> Like, all right, well, very how do we do sexy, that? very arousing moment. You're like, how, oh, how, how do you, how, how can we do that, but without raping Ned Beatty again? How, how do you feel about Eating Alive, the movie that he did after Texas Chainsaw? Oh, I actually haven't, I haven't seen Eating it. Alive. It's called Eden, Eaten Alive with Eat Robert England. It might really? have been a TV movie. Oh man, huh. I don't know. I just like I just read the logline, and it says that uh, a psychotic redneck who owns a dilapidated hotel in rural S East Texas kills various people who upset him or his business, and he feeds their bodies to a large crocodile that he keeps as a pet that in the swamp amazing. beside his hotel. I know <laughs> that's that why I, was, I wanted like to. Movie. I wanted to hear your opinion if you because I've never seen it, but it sounds like something we should do that. For yeah, from that TV. time that that could be fun. Yeah, that, that sounds like yeah, he got inspired by Psycho and the success of his own Texas Chainsaw. And Master. then uh, Motel Hell. Was that, yeah, a, was that out around yeah. that time? What year is this? 1976? 1980 was this, Motel Hell. So. This, oh, no, this is 76. Oh, wow. So maybe yeah. Motel Hell uh, drew from them. Motel Hell is great, by the way. That's another one we should watch. On yeah. TV. But, yeah, it, it's it, it's a good trope. And uh, they don't really... Uh, who, who was it? Joss Whedon and, and um, 
Joss Whedon and what's his name? Um, some Godard uh, played on that on like Cabin in the Woods, which I have like some reservations. Oh, Drew about, Goddard, but... yeah, yeah, Drew, Drew Goddard, Goddard. did uh, Cloverfield. Yeah, right. And so they they drew on that uh, trope, and it's funny how they kind of had it on like the board of things to do. And yeah, that's probably one of the oldest ones I think in, in modern film that's still occasionally explored, uh, maybe just in different ways. But I don't know. And then when you when then when you tie it back to somebody like Ed Gein, who the movie is based off of, he was in I think rural Wisconsin back in the fifties. So maybe there's some truth to this uh, this seething, bloodthirsty redneck thing. I haven't met them since I've been down here in Texas, and I've been. Mm. Everywhere but West Texas, and yeah, is that where the is that where the real people are? <laughs> the real Texans? <laughs> Maybe, but, you know, the, no, they say they say East Texas is where um, is where a lot of that stuff happens. Texas Chainsaw was actually it's based in Central Texas. A lot of it is um, a lot of it was filmed and staged within about a thirty to forty five minute radius of Austin, and. Um, farm country like big time but certainly not the image you'd necessarily get at least today of of backcountry woods it's a lot of open farmland a lot of desolation it, it's actually mesmerizing uh, i was actually coming back from waco a couple days ago and it's you just get you know hundreds of miles uh, at a time of just open farmland or, or quasi desert and i think that's the atmosphere that was really cool that um hooper base uh that, that hooper kind of kind of built but it's certainly not the archetype that people think of today where it's, it's dense woods maybe like the ozark forest or anything like that this is all desolate farmland which is its own aesthetic that i don't think has really been done effectively since then that's that's what i was going to ask you because i think that uh the main reason why this movie is so difficult to replicate especially when you have so many sequels that look and feel nothing like the original one yeah. Is that uh, the feeling that it gives you or the way that their location is presented? I don't think it's explored as much in any of the other movies. Uh, so even even from the from the first scene with the van, right? That's how it starts. Like from that yeah, the, scene where, where you, armadillo, yeah. Yeah, and you see how there's nothing around them. So from then from immediately from then you're you're immediately taken into this location and that along with the graininess of the film and how dirty everything feels <clears throat> and looks it is to me what makes it so difficult to replicate but because i know that you're a fanatic of this thing what what do you think is that the main reason why no one's been able to do that because like you said even texas chainsaw massacre 2 that i really like but it feels nothing like the the first one mm -hmm. i think it's because I, I think it's a simple answer i think it's because um if you go out on some of those roads like um that gas station from from the film is still up it's actually a barbecue joint and a cabin uh and a cabin getaway now i've actually stayed at it i've had their food some of the best brisket i've ever had in my life by the way um you go on those scenic roads like that's on um that's on scenic highway 304 in Bastrop, just um, about 30, 40 minutes outside of Austin. When you go on what are those you doxing roads, them? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm <laughs> plugging them, dude. It's a good business. <laughs> um, MapQuest link. <laughs> yeah. No, but if, if you, if you get on these, you get on these like farm roads and country roads and that's, that's what they're actually labeled when you, when you drive down them. Um, when you get on those roads on a hot summer day, say June, July, August, and it's 
105 degrees out and and you're driving for 60 miles at a time through just almost absolute desolation in a couple towns of maybe a population of 1200 or 1500 it's it's a it's a total aesthetic in itself and um i think the fact of the matter is a lot of the latter films have not gone out into that kind of environment and shot the way that toby hooper and his crew did he was running a skeleton crew back in those days um largely with ut austin students uh on his crew and in his cast like edwin neal who's um who's one of the sawyer family he, he's kind of the wily one the hitchhiker ah. um and okay. uh, and you go out there uh, in 100 105 degrees that alone just creates a whole aesthetic with your actors your talent just completely sweating out like all that makeup the the the, the haze and the lens on the on, on these 16 mil cameras at the time and it's it's not a comfortable position to be shooting rigorous scenes in several hours in and it like i can understand why the latter films haven't done it but um if they're looking for if they're looking for that authenticity it's like well you're gonna have to sacrifice a lot of comfort right i think this actually ties back to something we were talking about as far as new york goes which is that these like these areas are still easy to find around here it's like why why can't we do a maniac style new york Mm -hmm. film why is it all very uh gentrified lena dunham uh sex in the city new york Mm -hmm. and those places exist but to what you're saying right now, Jake, uh, ties back all the same. People do not want to sacrifice their comfort. And also, a lot of the time, it's difficult to have an enormous crew be in these areas and work in these areas. And a lot of the time, it's not either safe or uh, it might just be, you know, weather problem or some kind of environmental problem. You know, it's not ideal for an actual large-scale production. No, it, it, especially today when the film industry, minus a few pockets, is largely corporatized to where, and let's say you have a legitimate actor you want to put in the fold, somebody who's got some credits, and not necessarily a Jim Seedow or anything like that, but they've got SAG cred- credibility, you're not going to be able to really have them in, a, in an environment like that, and that's not going to be conducive to what their union dues call for. So that corporatization of the industry, I think, um, really kind of, I think stymies anything that that really feels authentic and harsh like that. It's not to say that you can't do it, but it's more challenging to do it now. And the, the, the sacrifice you very well might have to make is you're going to have to make a movie that doesn't have uh, marketable talent in the forefront, which today is really kind of the um, almost the end all be all be all in terms of like preliminary sales and whatnot. You're going to have to get really lucky. And this film kind of did, but it was still at a time where you could just go off of exploitative titles like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre or I Spit on Your Grave or I, uh, The Last House on the Left, The Hills Have Eyes. You could, you could have sexy exploitative titles like that. It could sell enough. Today, you can't do that uh, to the same capacity, at least. So, I mean, me, no, nothing would joy me more than to emulate that kind of shooting style very little money but a good concept and a faithful crew out in the harsh elements and just toughen it out but um like like we said those latter films maybe with the exception of the next generation have really faltered in in 
emulating that authenticity because of the way things are today in terms of, of workflow. Yeah, the next generation does, I think, maybe have the most similar look in setting, I guess, of those original four. Uh, the third one, it's kind of difficult to tell because it mainly takes place, I think, at night. And it has more of like a Louisiana feel than a Texas feel. It's like very swampy, very gross. That's more hatchet. That's more hatchet. Yeah, more East Texas. Very more Joe Lansdale. Uh, also stars Ken Forey, who's in the background here in Rob Zombie's Halloween. Maybe we can talk about, uh, you know, his his own version of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which I think winds up capturing the spirit of those original films better than some of the newer sequels do. Um, and then, yeah, with Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, it seems pretty deliberate that he's not looking to have much overlap with that original. So I don't even really consider that as something that might be failing in trying to emulate the the vibe or the feel uh certainly that i think the third and the fourth one had set out to do yeah and i think that's a great artistic decision from hooper because it's uh you do texas chainsaw in 74 that blows up and i think it was an eighty thousand dollar budget at the time which that that's like making a movie for three hundred thousand today or less than four hundred thousand today and it becomes that big of a hit and uh like what nine years later you do poltergeist this big studio movie that's a major hit spielberg and amblin and then finally you do texas chainsaw 2 and it's like well why would i why would i try to emulate something that i made with zero money and in grueling conditions when i can just try to do something completely different offbeat but still fun and uh not necessarily scary but still try to push boundaries and he did do that with the second one still just a little bit more tongue-in-cheek than the first one and the first one does have its tongue-in-cheek elements but they're way more veiled than i think they are in the second movie he he also did a life force and invaders from mars in between those two and i think those two are they're not good but uh they're fun like they're both very watchable very you know that that period of the 80s uh they also did uh salem's lot in 79 for TV. Yeah. Maybe oh, my, yeah, my yeah. favorite of his. Also, talk about really different sequels. Salem's Lot, The Return to Salem's Lot. I think, it was it Larry Cohen directed the sequel to that? And uh, oh, it has, yeah. I think, Michael Moriarty as the lead. And his I remember <laughs> when, I, uh, when I watched that, when I was maybe about like 14, I was very annoyed with it because there's virtually no overlap with that original Salem's Lot couldn't be more different uh, to that original or, or or really have anything at all to do with the book they just used the name Salem's Lot and then wound up doing their own concept which was like well the vampire town has been infested and uh, you know they can't just lay around wanting blood all day they gotta you know worry about taxes and they got to send the kids to school and they got to get a job at the factory and it's just like a it's a nocturnal town basically and then maybe if they're lucky someone will drive in and they'll eat them great okay well, i mean that, that has nothing to that? do with a return to salem's lot oh that sounds not very good no it i mean when i watched it it was pretty terrible <laughs> i have a feeling it was probably uh maybe more charming than I was uh, able to register at that time. Just knowing that the director and the the, the star and having seen the stuff, uh, you know, he's got uh, some talent behind him as a as a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. But that movie sucks. That movie is a piece of shit. 
Uh, anyway, uh, to what I was saying before, which was I actually lost my point here. What were we talking about? Um, <clears throat> Toby Hooper, I guess. To- oh, right. Thought- oh, so when yeah. did to- Toby Hooper fall off? Um, because some, some people say he of- didn't even really direct Poltergeist. I've heard mixed reports on that. There's been a little bit of pushback as of late that he actually did, that his alcoholism was exaggerated during that time. I think people maybe just have that idea because it feels so Spielberg-y. <clears throat> Good question. I think uh, I think his, his uh, filmography falls off after Night Terrors for me. Uh, the segment in Body Bikes is fine, but then The Mangler, I... Uh, and then after that's that, another Robert England TV. film, isn't it? The Mangler, based on a Stephen King property. Then after that, it's just series, series, series. Uh, uh, yeah. Toolbox Murders, Mortuary, which I haven't seen. Uh, Destiny Express and Gin. Yeah, I, I I'd say it's really place. probably Body Bags is is the, the the last thing that I think was it was a credible entry in his library that anybody would was really paying attention to did he uh did he get the invite to do masters of horror he did yeah you know he i'm almost positive that he did uh an entry two yeah yeah two episodes the damn thing and dance of the dead with robert england what do you guys think of him as a director uh, who uh toby hooper yeah i I think robert england (laughs) (laughs) i think his movies feel uh somehow realistic even though a lot of them are very goofy and very unrealistic i guess uh i like his camera uh movements a lot uh, i feel like he adds a lot of tension and a lot uh of uh emotion i guess with with the way that he moves the camera especially when a little bit of action is happening uh not a lot uh, happens in, in in his movies like not not uh, long action scenes but i feel like his usage of camera whenever it's needed uh, works really well, especially in you know Texas Chainsaw that we're talking about. Uh, uh, one of those reasons why uh, it can't be replicated, I think, uh, or at least hasn't been for, with the sequels, is because of that camera movements that um, add a lot to that movie that uh, Jake just said had almost no budget. Yeah, for, for, for you know, for me, I'm I'm a definite fan. I th- I think the only caveat I'd have is that um, Hooper, I think, just has the uh, unfortunate association of, but it's also a fortunate associate associate association. So it's a little bit like give and take between he and some of the other masters uh, of his time. Really, like uh, <clears throat> John Carpenter, uh, Wes Craven, people in that realm. I think. The problem that he faced is that he he was a terrific filmmaker, and I think his body of work speaks for it in every way, and he was an innovator at that. But the problem is that when it came to being a full-fledged member of the of the tribe and in, in, in the business full-time and in the big time, I think it seemed tough for him to have a palatable formula or a real kind of, I think, uh, calling card style of directing that... that could serve to be palatable and marketable in the mass market. Uh, John Carpenter learned to, I, I think, build that as his resume shows, and especially Wes Craven, who probably has maybe the most, probably the most box, box office success of anybody in that in that collective of those kind of early 70s or mid to late 70s um, 
if you want if you want to restrict it to horror films like horror uh, tours really uh, Hooper I think is just at the tail end of that pack because I think he's somebody that I, I think drew from a lot of experimental kind of um, kind of influences and yeah. I, I just think it, it, his ideas though some of them might have been great I just don't think were executed in in a palatable way for for mainstream audiences outside of a few films his films feel very early romero to me uh and by that i mean uh that's pretty small scale no 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 i like early romero uh but what i mean Uh, what i mean by that is that uh especially when you compare it to all of those other directors uh, his films always feel uh smaller like more uh closer to this could happen to this person more than just a spectacle type of thing you know uh uh martin and his early uh those early romero films feel very much like character studies or or like a very small stories that he's able to you know uh portray in different ways but they never feel like a big movie and even poltergeist that you guys mentioned like it it still doesn't feel as big as something like well even you know uh uh, what escape from New York or, or anything like that. No. Yeah. Yeah. I, which, which correct me funny. if I'm wrong. Uh, you had a very mm-hmm. negative opinion about his movies when we did the show with Don Jolly regarding like season of the witch and those yeah. kind of awkward, uh, you know, adolescent stage uh, films in his career. Yeah. I've rewatched uh, Martin since. Uh, and uh, I don't know. I think for to, to watch those, <clears throat> those early movies that feel so disconnected from the type of filmmaking that is made now uh you have to be in a mental state to accept that and not find so many flaws i think i was just looking at them with contemporary eyes and just trying to find uh mistakes and things like that because i knew of the director that he became but afterwards i just watched martin with with fresh eyes and and i really enjoyed it so uh, i guess it's just i I see his career as, as those two like as soon as he gets into zombie thing uh and it starts blowing out uh even though his movies are never that huge uh i think he loses a little bit of, of what he has in in those early movies uh and yeah my, my opinion has definitely changed when did we do that like two years ago that, no that was last year that was around last this year. time last year yeah, yeah. well wow. uh, question for you guys have you seen the amusement park uh, that went to shutter and uh, they finally released it only a couple of days ago i believe I haven't seen it, but I did see our good friend, a uh, good friend of the show, Jeremy. I believe he watched it and he posted a, a quick blurb that it wasn't so hot. Maybe it should have been left on the cutting room floor. Yeah, so. it's. Uh, I mean, it's it's very. I mean, for Ramiro, that it feels like a novice short film. I mean, it's supposed to be a PSA. It's mostly experimental, and it's a very obvious metaphor for for life and how. Uh, you know, the senior citizen. I mean, he tells you as much in the beginning and in the end with one of the actors from Martin uh, who does not have an accent in real life. So he was able to fool me in that film. Uh, it, it's not very good. And I think it. it's, I mean, if you're a Ramiro fan and you like that 1970s period of filmmaking, uh, you know, his run during that time, it feels like a nice little special feature, I guess, like a little bonus treat for his uh, filmography in its entirety. But, I mean, there's nothing special there. I, I mean, 
I have a hunch that his his wife, his widow, is probably just hard up for money and is making some deals. Because now there's a there's a new Living Dead film that he wrote in a certain period of time that's now going to get released with a new director. So I mean, good for her for for making money his, off that. His and, son, right? Remember? No, his, I mean, based on the podcast we saw with his son, I don't think he's getting a goddamn thing. I think he's getting welfare checks, Hans. Oh, well, that's those the, that's the Pittsburgh life for you. So, are you yeah. saying that this movie feels more like feels more like a George Romero's vlog than a real movie? No, 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 no. It feels like a, it has a kind of similar vibe to the Crazies. You know how that was kind of amateur yeah. in its own way, but uh, extremely scaled back and. Um, Again, it's like a, it's a PSA, but it's a fifty. He tried to do he tried to turn a PSA into a movie, and it's a bit pretentious. It feels very early in his in his work. Student film, yeah, kind. I mean, not, a little bit more than a student film, but not not there yet, not professional right. just yet. When when was it made in the, his timeline? I films, feel like it was you know? maybe nineteen seventy one. So I, it was after Night of the Living Dead. Early. Yeah, and before the crazies, which is actually a good movie, that that one's pretty fun. Seventy three, seventy three, seventy three says here. Yeah, so that's after uh, the crazies. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's after so, the crazies. After the crazies, so he had a good movie that year. So this one not so hot. All right, well, it's not. I, I mean, it's it's to... hard for me to even really call it a movie because it. Does, I mean, it's oh. technically feature length. In that, I think the Academy's rule is anything over 45 minutes is officially a feature-length movie, which is kind of ridiculous. It's 50 yeah, minutes, dumb. but it's really like 30 minutes, and it's 10 minutes of talking at the top of the movie, and then five minutes of talking at the end. And it's pretty, again, it, it's, uh, it's, it's a bit It's just narrated? Abstract. Is there narration, or is there, is there dialogue and actors? And no, there, there's dialogue. Uh, you've just followed the uncle from Martin... And uh, see all the weird abuse and neglect that he goes through at this amusement park, which is also a grocery store, and they have a church, and it's like basically a town in a in a in an amusement park. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It was. I mean, so it's I, fine. I think this is what you two were getting at, but um, Hooper himself, I think, is that hybrid right in the middle between a super low budget really culty kind of guy like Romero who never I think got a solid budget behind any one of his movies and then Land maybe no not even maybe yeah maybe a few million dollars on that but by then it was uh, pennies. I mean at, at that point he had become a legend right so he had taken some time off from making any big I think he had one with Peter Stormare in the early 2000s that was a, a, you know, it was very obscure. It might have even been like Canadian produced. So he mm -hmm. had the uh, the Dead trilogy that he was known for that bolstered him to the status of legend. And I think Creepshow was at, at that time still in people's good graces and kind of part of that, uh, you know, maybe nostalgia for his filmmaking. So he, I mean, and Land of the Dead was in, I mean, it was in pre-production for maybe 15 years. It took a long time to get that in motion and uh, see it through over at Universal. It was still Twilight of the, the Dead, you know, in the 90s. The movie you're talking about is called uh, Bruiser. Yes, Bruiser. Uh, with Peter, and uh, Land of the Dead had a budget of $16 million. Okay, so not too bad. In I mean, 2005, yeah. That's yeah. pretty solid. What for, did Dawn of the Dead have for a budget? The, oh, God. Uh, I, I, would, I think it was uh, maybe 60000 maybe less. 
No, 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 no. The Zack Snyder remake of Dawn of the Dead. Oh, that was probably a, that was probably a thirty million dollar movie, if not more. Because that that's uh, that seems twenty six. Okay, yeah. so not not too much more, but it's kind of weird to be talking about movies made that recently with such like limited budgets and especially big yeah, properties yeah. for a zombie film nowadays. I mean, you don't even really need that much to do it, but they'll throw like fifty million dollars at a zombie film or series and then that all goes to cg it doesn't even go to get you know getting extras or doing practical effects well, war war z was 250 million oh 250 million budget for for that too and who has gone movie. back to it who has who who went out of their way to buy world war z on dvd or blu-ray or even a movie ticket didn't didn't have they made the second one yet isn't that the plan or Fincher it's was supposed, supposed to, to be coming the second out one. soon, but uh, well, it made a shitload of money. Ago. It made five hundred million, so it made twice the three, four times the budget. Um, where was he too? Mm, no, I don't think they even started shooting it. I, last I heard, Brad Pitt had convinced David Fincher to direct the movie, and he agreed, and then it just fell apart. Mm. Good. Yeah, I, don't think I mean, we need that's one. probably it. I don't think we need. Oh, oh, okay. Uh, I, I'm so glad I have both of you guys. Uh, according to this thing, to Wikipedia, uh, 2017, uh, Chinese government's ban of film featuring zombies or ghosts was the single biggest reason the Paramount canceled the sequel. <laughs> so wow. it's canceled because of China. Uh, oh, wow. This is a good thing. My people did something good. Uh, <laughs> one thing that I wanted to talk to you about, because uh, I was watching the um, uh, stream that the Death Course guys were having yesterday, and they were talking about Black Summer, positively about oh, Black Summer. No. And they're not the first people that I hear talk positively about Black Summer. I feel like we're the only people <laughs> that didn't like Black Summer because I, I, no. I still have yet to hear anything. I, I don't think this Black Summer situation, though, is going to turn into a Wake and Fright one where uh, after the fact, you know, it kind of lingers no. for everybody. And it's like, oh, that that was actually kind of a good movie. It just was no. like a weird pick for Civic TV. I no, actually Black referred Summer to terrible. Wake and Fright like two days ago. Yeah, it's had that effect on me, too. Black Summer is just unintentionally silly hilarious bad just so funny for for a reason but like people are are watching it in like seriously like caring for these it, characters and, and it's coming back it's coming i know back. they they yeah. got a season two made with a pretty good budget so i i i was just confused because i remember like i know my memory is shit but i remember i started watching it here with my girlfriend and even we were both like this is pretty terrible right and then I watched it with you guys, and I just—I don't even remember if we were drunk or not, but we were just laughing at how bad it was because it, it felt like a like a B movie or like a like a on purpose bad show, but it wasn't. Uh, but everything I've seen is just praise for it, and I'm so confused. Is it because there's not many zombie things now, so everything like? Uh, no, there's plenty of zombie things. I mean, Walking Dead is still going. Train to Busan is one of the biggest horror movies of the All past right. five years. Fear of the Walking Dead is still Fear the Wa- There's Fear three Walking Dead series. Z Nation. And then they're going to start a new one. They've got the Carol and Daryl one that's going to come next. Carol and, and Daryl. Oh. That sounds like a cute yeah. 1970s uh, <laughs> Altman film. Uh, uh, I think this, the zombie genre is 
tapped out, beyond tapped out. I it's, cannot oh, even I, pally I, a second I, zombie I, anything. Train to Busan was, was I actually watched it uh, for the first time recently when Joe Bob Briggs hosted it because I am so apprehensive about the zombie subgenre. I will not watch it. I, I'm done. There, there's nothing Don't. more to do. It's uninteresting. I will I think not the, entertain it. Train to Busan is objectively fantastic. Yeah, that one is good. The first one. Don't yeah, watch Peninsula. If, if that's how you not feel. Not the one that they renamed oh. Peninsula instead of Train to Busan 2. That is insanely oh. bad. Uh, and also, so bad. you want, the worst movie I may have watched, certainly that I've watched this year, and maybe have watched in, in five years, is Zombieland 2. That is an it, wow. it's an absurdly terrible film. Yeah, that that actually popped in my head when we were talking about the Romero film in the amusement park. So, uh, give me the cliff notes <laughs> on what makes it so terrible. Because the so, first one, the first one, I like the first one. The first one, it, it's mm-hmm. a great, and it's funny because we're so, we're far enough removed now. It's a great, I think, screenshot or like time capsule of that, yeah. that kind of social, yeah, uh, social moment in the late aughts of of like oh nine and that. That kind of jump-started the whole zombie craze that came in the following decade with The Walking Dead coming out in like 2010 and whatnot. But play, let me know, what was the deal with uh, Zombieland Double Tap? It's just same jokes. I mean, I, well, I, it, I mean same, it's, it's, same. it's repetition. There's some of that, sure. Uh, if I was Gene Shalit, I would say Zombieland 2 has no bite. That's what I would say Ooh. if I was Gene Shalit. <laughs> um, Isn't he, is he still it's alive, really... It's. I mean, you I don't really get <laughs> any. Just, just by that, I'm not familiar with him. Just by that, I hope not. <laughs> if you ever, he looks like the original Mario. I, I got it. I if got you've it. ever oh, seen uh, the, the Mario Brothers uh, public access show with the fat guy with long curly hair, like uh, oh hell yeah, yeah, yes. big the old super mustache. Super Mario Brothers Super Show. I think it was right, called yeah, or yeah, yeah. Like Before Bob yeah, Hoskins yeah. stepped in, tried to. Gene Shell is still alive and he's 95 years old. <laughs> yeah. He's still working, I'm sure. Uh, anyway, Zombieland 2 winds up uh, not committing to anything of consequence. It feels like Marvelized, feels Disneyfied. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there's this big third act where they're going to a compound that is a commune, and it's all Gen Z, millennial stereotype. Oh, we're, it's essentially like a communist compound. And they're like, no guns, no guns allowed here. Uh, and uh, they, I mean, Woody Harrelson's character is not willing to sacrifice his gun because he's very, you know, independent. He wants to defend himself. Yeah. Uh, the rest of them melt oh, their wow. guns down. They go inside. <laughs> oh, you posted a photo of Gene Shalit here in our chat. Let's just take wow. a look at old Gene nowadays. Jesus. Yes, yeah, yeah. So he looks like a no turd stash. He looks like a <laughs> like a professor or a magician in a side quest RPG. You know. Um, <laughs> so, at the end of this movie, what do you think is going to happen? You're gonna, the zombies are going to infiltrate the compound. They're not going to have their weapons to defend themselves, right? Right. That's how it should have went, and it should have been a bloodbath, but. Here's what happens. They all form a circle and they defeat thousands of zombies just with teamwork and friendship. And they all fall into a pit. You don't need guns after all. It's just, it's bullshit. Wait, uh, what? It's propaganda. It's, it's a, it turns, it turns it, a, a film that was intended to end one way and they go, fuck, 
what just happened. Probably something bad. There was probably some rally, something right wing happened. Oh God, we can't do the ending. Fuck. All right, let's have the communist compound work out. They don't need their guns to beat the zombies, and everybody lives free and happy. And it's a new generation. This is the youth. This is this is today. We're with the times, and uh, everybody's happy. Do they teach the zombies how to love? what the fuck dude how do you kill zombies without yeah here's what you do i I mean you form a you form a like there's a giant wall of people and they put up like a metal guard and you just you know you're bumping in it's like a a mosh pit with the zombies and you push them down a hole you do that when there's ten thousand zombies invading your compound and nothing means anything doesn't matter it's the stupidest shit i hated then what happens when they're in a hole they fall off a cliff. They're down in the hole. They go splat. I guess. If oh, they don't go splat, then but... they probably come back up, and you have a bigger problem. Yeah, exactly. That's. <laughs> I don't that's know. So it's stupid. Of... It's a stupid fucking movie. It was a waste <laughs> of ninety minutes. They should have never made the sequel. It sucked. Well, it killed any any type of threequel. I guess that could have. Well, there out, was the right? series. They tried to do the series with uh, with Mike White from Chuck and Buck. You ever see Chuck and Buck? No. no. Oh. <laughs> well, you should probably watch that by yourself one night. Don't invite the you girlfriend. Criticize my love for Burn Notice, but you know Chuck and <laughs> Chuck Buck. Chuck and Buck is actually pretty funny. Chuck and Buck's a good movie. Anyway, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is probably best known for inspiring Nicholas oh, Mike Weffin. Mike <laughs> That's White. the guy from Sorry, the guy from uh, School, of, School Rock. of Rock, the roommate. Yeah. yeah. Runner up, Survivor, David versus Goliath. How about that? He got like three oh, votes boy. in the end. Good for, good for Mike White. Um, anyway, he did two seasons of Amazing Race with his gay dad, his gay pastor dad, who used to write for Jerry Falwell or one of those guys. How did we get here? <laughs> we got the School of Rock guy. Six Degrees of Jerry Falwell. <laughs> you said uh, Hooper inspired Reffin? Or... Yes, Reffin was uh, largely inspired by the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I believe he said it was like the first movie he watched. Or he watched it when he was six years old, something like that. I don't believe that. I don't think. That's I believe true. it. Speaking of com- uh, you know communist compounds, I believe his mother left her her husband, his father, and they lived in a New York City compound with a bunch of weird artists and stuff. And Isn't that's why he's a freak. Like Danish though, or uh, yeah, but yeah. he he was raised in New York City and lived in New York City for a period of time. Then went back. Uh, around, I think, his late teens uh, or maybe early 20s, and that's when he made Pusher, his first film. Okay. So he has still the Danish weirdness, but also the arrogance of a rich New Yorker. Exactly. Great. Oh, that, that's a killer combination. You know what I thought earlier is that something that would have benefited Toby Hooper to his uh, to his betterment over time is if he pulled kind of a trick got a John Carpenter's book and he worked with the same people over and over again to, to at least not try to mimic the lightning in a bottle. That was uh, the first Texas chainsaw and even to an extent, the second, but um, the same way Carpenter worked time and time again with Tommy Lee Wallace and maybe more specifically Dean Cundy, his cinematographer uh, until I think big trouble, little China might've been the last entry they did together. Or maybe that was Gary Kibbe at the time. And uh, I think Hooper probably would have benefited greatly if he if he stayed linked up with Daniel Pearl, who shot the first film and is still working today and is still one of the most respected cinematographers in the industry. Uh, he, they actually brought him back 
to shoot the 2003 remake of Texas Chainsaw with uh, Jessica right. Biel and Ar- Arlie Ermey. Mm. And that's actually why that, that film is, it's actually a pretty solid remake. And it, it, in part because of um, just how well shot it is. It, it, uh, they didn't well, go Ermey's, like... Ermey's great too. Oh yeah. Er- Ermey's, so, yeah. Ermey is probably He's... the top top two reasons that that's a pretty viable remake. Um, and yeah, I, th- I think somebody like Hooper probably would have, um, should have heeded the idea of like, keep, keep a close knit kind of crew and you can probably carve out a much more defined niche. Cause to our point that maybe he wasn't the best in his company at the time. And he kind of fell off after say body bags and, has a legacy that's really confined to, I'd say, Seven. three or four movies, um, yeah. rather than somebody like Craven or Carpenter, who their legacy is over a dozen films each. Uh, I think it's because I don't think there's a lot of consistency in Hooper's films uh, aesthetically, really. Mm-hmm. His yeah. ideas are great. His execution is is actually pretty stellar on most of his good ones, especially the, the Texas Chainsaw movies and like Salem's Lot and uh, I, I think to a slightly lesser extent Poltergeist, but yeah, there's no consistency there and some people might like that, but me, I think I think it's it's a little too jarring and it makes him feel like a little too much of a mercenary type filmmaker as much as I think his body of work is innovative. I think he, I think he stymied himself by not having a... Um, a solid kind of crew that he could always fall back on because a lot of those auteurs seem to. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, you know, why don't we get into the contents of the movie itself? Uh, I know my favorite character when I first watched it, when I got a VHS tape from Blockbuster, I, this was one of those movies when I was like 10 years old that I was really desperate to watch this night of the living dead. Um, Dawn of the Dead, that was another one as well. And it was always very difficult to find the original movies for whatever reason, in in my neck of the woods anyway. You could find the remakes, you could find the countless sequels. It was always difficult to track down the original. And especially with the Romero films. like the, I mean, for whatever reason, Dawn of the Dead was out of print on VHS for a period of time. I think they did like one reprinting uh, via Anchor Bay in the 90s and then even that sold out it was gone so texas chainsaw massacre i don't think even got reprinted until maybe it hit like dvd they might have done one in the meantime that was like good times home video uh but still it didn't pop up i think until uh maybe like 2003 or 4 when vhs was really on its way out and I remember I had tucked my VHS player away and I had my DVD set up. I was ready to go and I had to set it back up in order to watch this film. And I made a mistake the first time. I didn't wind up getting Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I got the 30, I think it was 30 year reunion that they held or something. Oh. And it was like an uh-huh. old with the, with Gunnar Hansen. Man, and out of shape. Yes. And it was and, them. Uh, Marilyn, Marilyn Burns. It's just a, yeah, it was them sitting around talking, you know, <laughs> waxing poetic about their experience on the set. It was only like 50 minutes long. Very disappointing surprise. So I went back. I eventually what got it. to Marilyn Burns. Oh, she, she's dead, but she just got she just got haggard and old and yeah, plump. that's what would happen. Yeah. She had a beautiful young woman back in the day. And then pfft. Sally Struthers, you know, no, Sally, Sally Hardesty anyway, in this case. Twinkies. Oh. Twinkies happened. 
Wait, on that note, we have to, I think we need to touch on the joke I made in one of our comfort systems episodes. Paul Partain. Uh, I was going to ask. Paul Partain. Yeah. yeah. Hans, maybe you get into Paul Partain before I do. <laughs> Why? He's the Paul Partain. The wheelchair. The one that played Franklin. Yeah. 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 Okay. You love he you, he you was my favorite character, character when I was a kid. I loved how oh. shitty and obnoxious he was. I and I the, just wanted him to die so bad. <laughs> like I just wanted him to just like why are they putting up with this piece of shit so much? You know, I hated him. I think <laughs> I, I think that's a terrific that. subversion, especially for that era where you have the most obnoxious, annoying, terrible character be the handicapped <laughs> one. And and, yeah. and he gets and he gets sawed literally in a half on on screen. He's the last yeah, one to so go. Satisfying. They say he is, yeah, yeah. So the story behind that, for anybody that may not know, is um, so Paul Partain, who plays Franklin Hardesty in the film, which which again, like, l- let me just say my own piece on that. It, the character of Franklin is is like you said, a brilliant subversion, and um, now now being a resident of Texas for a little while incredibly believable to an extent <laughs> if if you go out in east texas or you you get out in some of those boondocking places you'll have those flipping kind of guys that that will sit there and go and and let and, me just let me just say one of my controversial opinions but handicapped people in the united states are the most or one of the most uh entitled assholes in the whole fucking oh, country. Yeah. Oh, you like don't even every, know. Everyone that's like hand, handy, handicapped on anything, even if it's like anxiety or whatever, they think that that's an, enough excuse to just be a piece of shit. Oh, oh, wait, wait until you, Hans, when you come back to the States, you're going to come in, into Texas for one of the next movies we do. And you are going to see the <laughs> handicapped people, especially on the road, are the most unforgiving, uh, com- completely ruthless people you ever meet. Horrible people, actually. Horrible yeah. people. But anyway, they serve everything they get. Everything they get is served. The um, <laughs> so the story about Paul Partain is is actually hilarious because um, he plays the most annoying, annoying and and obnoxious character in the movie, and and per the actors and the the crew on set, that was him. That was Paul Partain. Um, he. <laughs> he apparently was was always making a fuss. Uh, he he was he was hard to work with. He was a diva. He was giving everybody a headache on set. And like I said, this this is this is 1973, eighty thousand dollar budget with a, a UT Austin crew shooting this on a whim for for very <sighs> little money in in a hundred five degrees. I worked at it. I worked at one hundred five degrees in Waco the other day. It's not exactly comfortable all the time. And you have no assurance that you're going to make any money. And Paul Partain was the guy that everybody wanted to be rid of on set. I think they actually had to, <laughs> they, I think they actually had to separate him from uh, a number of the cast and crew members uh, Fuck that bad. For, for a short time because he was driving everybody nuts. So is he really uh, in a wheelchair for real? No, no. I think that was just part oh. of the character. Uh, oh, so, so so he's just an asshole. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's just a he's, fucking asshole. He's All just right. a class A prick. Well, he was like you, I, like you couldn't be usually with handicapped people. You can't be a dick to them because of right. You're not supposed to be. But if he's just an asshole, it's just like 
fuck off, fatty. Like, what? like, why are you acting like a, you have no credits, literally, like nothing before that. Yeah. No, exactly. And um, I, I guess the cosmic justice that came out of um, Paul Pertain being the biggest prick on the set of this movie in the dead of summer in 73 uh, is, I think he was the first one to die. He was the first one to die from the cast. <laughs> he passed away, I think, back in 2005. 2005 says here. Oh, 2005. Okay, so maybe it was yeah. Jim Cedow who, who died first, but he was a much older man. And a, a much I was going to say that he, he was my favorite character from that. From those yeah. two movies, I think. Yeah, Drayton the Sawyer. De- he, he, ter- terrific performances. Yeah. Uh, th- see, that's something from those films that, for somebody like me, is, is a huge selling point. I, Even though we're all working to, to, to make features and make very legitimate features, I loathe the idea of sourcing from talent agencies of, you know, pretty boy X, Y, and Z. I don't care how old they are, but... Jim Cedow is, is, or was in every way, authenticity. He was, he was a very capable actor, fantastic in, in those two movies, but he has the look, he has the authentic look. You believe that this is, this is some central Texas dude that is just off the I, beaten path. Listen, I think Chad Michael Murray would have killed it in the Jim Cedow role, personally. Oh, so boy. That's, Let's try that's to Photoshop that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Maybe that is a me thing. Um, that's over my head, but that sounds horrendous. You gotta go watch some One Tree Hill. Oh, oh god, that's all right. Yeah. You weren't you weren't a teen in the OOs like uh, <laughs> like Jake and I were. Yeah, um, but, but but it's um, Jim Cito is probably the best example. Maybe well, maybe Edwin Neal is as the uh, as the hitchhiker. Which uh, there's a funny story behind him as well. When they were having uh, casting calls for uh, Texas Chainsaw. They, I think they put out an open casting call at UT Austin back in like 72, 73. And one of the actors, or no, um, one of the students at UT Austin saw the casting call. And I think they told Edwin Neal, who was like their their cousin, like, oh, there's a, there's this movie. And Edwin Neal was doing like, I think he was doing plays or like comedy shows or something like that at the time. And so they told him to go to the audition. And so what he did was he went, completely wasted apparently or like hung over and just started doing a bunch of like funny faces and weird gyrations like he does in the movie and for that like they cast him they they cast him and uh and again he's he's just so bizarrely perfect and uh like like just the epitome of that i, I was about to say he's like the perfect character. the perfect uh link between the world from the regular people that are in the van and the family uh, because when they start interacting with him, like they all tra- treat him like, like this, you know, uh, we're gonna respect him or like fear him more fear, I guess. But they're they're not mean to him, which they end up paying for, and and it's kind of like an opening of, uh, you know, this world that you guys are entering is not what where you're coming from, and it's completely different to anything you expect. And right there from the first scene, it's it's. Yeah, it, I have it's, to say, really, there's a terrific use of tension. Once he does enter the van, um, and even though you know his appearance is off-putting, and you already know he's going to be bad news, you don't quite get the vibe right off the bat that it's going to build into some kind of burst. I guess uh, until he's actually in there and he's trying to communicate with them, he's showing them pictures of uh, what is it like mutilated animals or something, and yeah. Yeah, he's yeah. playing with his knife, and they're they're starting to look nervous, and then you're like. 
this is about to go somewhere. And he winds up cutting uh, himself and then cutting somebody else and hopping out of the van. Franklin. And he off. cuts Franklin. He cuts Franklin, <laughs> yes. No, he don't cut me. <laughs> it's, it's, it's funny, man. Uh, Hans made a good point of, um, I, I forget the, the hitchhiker's name in the, in the series. I, I know Jim Cito's character is named Drayton. Um, but uh, Edwin Neal's character is, is, yeah, he's that link between the perceived outside world and then it, the other world. I'll tell you right now, that world exists, man. Like this, this is Nubins. Oh yeah, Nubbins. Is it Nubbins? Nubbins. Nubbins. Yeah, Nubbins, Nubbins, Nubbins Sawyer. Yeah, um, that world exists. It's real, man. It, it's it takes thirteen hours to drive across the state, and most of it, like ninety-five to ninety-eight percent of it is what you see in that movie w- with a couple minor exceptions like uh the big bend um like uh the, the, the kind of mountain ranges and stuff like that uh it, it's for real and i i've kind of met a couple of those people in that world and it's um n- not quite as murderous but it definitely is like, yeah i was gonna say people who eat people <laughs> some vor chat rooms they should do that yeah. that would be the next step is do fear.com but Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Do the oh, the killer cop. What's his name? What was the cannibal cop from New York City? That's the way to go. Oh boy, I forget that one. Cannibal that cop be, in New York City. Yeah. Uh, well, there was no. There was a real cop in New York City who uh, used like the police database to find women's addresses, and he would send them to other cannibal like cannibal wannabes. I would assume because he never did anything, or uh, oh. you know he would give like pictures of his wife to cannibals on like a vor chat room and be like yeah she loves jogging in central park this is what i would do to her what would you do and they're just like gay masturbation sessions with <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. like story time with a couple of that 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 sounds great men. to any producer in like oh two oh three but i it's it's just kind of cool to take in that desolate factor it's it's one of the cruxes of the movie that i think just makes it what it is it's it's totally true man there's another world out there outside of what we perceive like everybody's coming down here and the first reflex is oh well <laughs> i'm gonna go to austin like I, I'm, yeah, gonna go to austin. I'm, I'm gonna go be buddies with joe rogan and we're you know we're where, gonna hang you out. live in where dallas right well, yeah i'm in I dallas shouldn't be, i shouldn't be fucking never mind there's like sure seven no, there's, asking there's you like, they said your address <laughs> yeah. there's there is What's literally zip code, Jake? six million people in this metroplex i'm good sure. and and sure. yeah and i have i have home protection so uh, we'll see anyway <laughs> um no it, it's um the the perception right now is you go down and like oh i'm gonna go to austin and i'm gonna hang out with joe rogan we're gonna talk about weed and we're gonna we're, we're all <laughs> gonna DMT. chill yeah yeah <laughs> but i'm telling you man it, it takes the snap of a finger like me if i i i drive uh let's say 35 40 minutes um east uh toward towards or west say toward the the austin area like it's it's pretty much farmland all the way until i get there and then you leave austin it's all that until you get to wherever you want to go like el paso that, that's eight more I, hours i, I was gonna that. say it's Imagine moving to Texas with none of the benefit of Texas yeah. as the reward for moving. Th- like, that's everybody that goes to Austin. It's like it, it you seems go like there. they're just moving to Portland, Oregon. That's that's what I've heard anyway from people who are out in Austin. 
Well, the cool thing about um, Texas right now that I'll say not to get too um, PSA homo political is that it's actually um, state has actually been doing a great job uh, of kind of decentralizing things. Um, I think from the federal government and to local municipalities taking on like their own kind of way of doing things. Austin, Austin's in a lot of trouble. Um, but the, the, the Dallas area is a little bit better. And um, there's 254 counties in the state and like 248 of them are in pretty good shape. Not, not kind of, you know, not built, not, not glorifying tent cities or anything like that, like Austin is, but they, Again, that's that, that's just a byproduct of somebody. That, that's why, like, when Joe Rogan was like, oh, yeah, I'm going down to Austin. I was like, yeah, you're okay, but you still kind of suck. Please stay away. <laughs> hey, hey. Well, Lord, I don't think I, it's so it's much It's kind of good then, think, right? It's kind of good that all the out-of-towners are going to this one area that's already shit and is in its certain way, uh, you know, and not going to change, right? So Yeah, like, you know, like, Austin's a cool-ass city. Like, trust me, I'd hang out there any time, but, like... Um, living there right now it's it's just um the cultural paradigm it's it's a total far cry from the rest of the outside world which is like kind of the theme of this movie in a sense these college students going out to uh, going on a road trip to this cemetery in the middle in the in the in the middle of central texas and, and having no concept of the outside world that's been decimated by the assault on industry at the time in the 70s which perfect timing today kind of happened with that gas thing and then yeah. yeah and then other stuff going on it's yeah it's 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 prime example of like history repeating itself almost 